0: yet filled with joy and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened when the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan. They gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. This is the word of God. Well,
1: thank you, and it's good to see you this morning. Uh, If you don't know me, my name's Chris. Uh, It'd be great to have your Bibles open, or on your devices, so you can scan that QR code. That will take you to our electronic leaflet which has the Bible passage and then the talk outline. Or if you'd like a copy of the Bible, do stick up your hand because I really do want people to have the word of God open. I want you to see things that you may not have seen before. We need um, some helpful person to give Terry a Bible down here. (laughs) Thank you so much. Okay, well today and next Sunday are our Vision Sundays and at this time of the year, every year, we ask ourselves, what is God's vision? What is God's will for us? as a church in the year ahead. Now, of course, you know we can come up with our own plans, but they won't be any good unless they are in alignment with God's plans for us. So God's will, God's vision for us as a church, we remember our church is not our church, it is his church. And any growth that happens can only come through him. It doesn't come through us. So we need to ask for God's help. Will you pray with me? Our loving and merciful Father, we come before you as your body. You've formed us. You've gathered us together as your people. It's wonderful to be part of your church. But loving God, we want to be a church which does your will. Make known your will to us, we pray and help us through the help of your Holy Spirit to work out what that looks like on the ground here next year. We pray that any plans we come up with would be in alignment with yours. And we ask humbly that you would bring blessing and growth. And we look to you because we can't do it ourselves, but we know that you can and you do. So please, Heavenly Father, prosper us with new people who believe in Jesus, Uh, more people added to your number, Uh, those of us here growing more and more in love and deeper in maturity and stronger in faith and um, stronger in service. Our loving God, strengthen us, your people. We look to you in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, what is God's vision for our church? Now you might say, hang on, we already have a vision statement, don't we? Okay, And that starts with loving God, that's the bit we're thinking about today. Loving God, that's what Jesus told us to do, right? Didn't he? Yes, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind, that's right, Jesus did teach it. And then we might remember, of course Jesus didn't make this up, it wasn't a new teaching. God had commanded this of his people before. What's the greatest commandment? in the law, and then Jesus gave his answer. Jesus said, loving the Lord your God was the first and greatest commandment, the commandment that tops all others, and it actually occurs in the book of Deuteronomy uh, from the lips of Moses. Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Loving God actually was at the heart of the law, did you know? Okay." It's always been at the heart of what God requires of his people. Now here is a question I want us to ponder. How does Jesus' coming change or nuance that command? Put it another way, what does loving the Lord our God look like now that we know Jesus has risen from the dead? That's the issue we're going to explore in Matthew 28. Now, if you've been a Christian for a while, Jesus' final words to his disciples before he ascends into heaven will be familiar. These are the words of the Great Commission, where Jesus commissions his disciples. He sets his agenda for all his disciples until the end of the age. Now, it's it's a favorite passage that pastors like to go to. (laughs) Um, And no doubt, if you've been around for a while, you'll have heard lots of sermons on it. But I can almost guarantee that you won't have heard or you won't have realised one thing, well, actually, no, two, no, actually, three things about the Great Commission which will crack it open. Here's the first thing you may not have seen. I want you to see if you can pick it up. It's the thing repeated in the bit before the Great Commission. That's why we read the whole of Matthew 28. We hear it first in the angel's words to the women. Go quickly and tell his disciples he's risen from the dead and he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Then we hear it in Jesus' words to the women when he appears before them. Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. And then it comes out a third time. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee. Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. What's repeated? Galilee. Jesus has already risen from the dead. He appeared before the women in Jerusalem. He appeared before some disciples in Jerusalem. The disciples were in Jerusalem. He could have done all his resurrection appearances there. It would have saved a lot of worry, all right, and hassle. Why tell his disciples to go to Galilee. I mean, it's obviously important, but what is it about Galilee, right? Now a map helps. Here's a map of the area in the time of Jesus. There's the big blue lake, the Dead Sea down to the down at the bottom. And at the top of that lake, if you go left a bit, that's Jerusalem. Okay, so Jerusalem's sort of in the southern part. And Jesus was resurrected there. And then Galilee is 150 kilometers north. So you can see the Sea of Galilee, that other blue blob up there. And then there's the region of Galilee to the left, right? So Galilee is a long way to the north. Why does Jesus tell his disciples to go on a journey of five days walking to see him when they were already all in Jerusalem together? You get it? Why Galilee, is it because it's just a really neat tidying up of the gospel? You see, back in chapter four, Galilee was where Jesus started his public ministry. That's where he first began to preach. So does Jesus just like tidiness, does he say, well, let's go back there so that I can tidily end off in the same place where I began? You know, maybe he makes his bed really neatly or something and it's just applied outward. Is that it? No. No. Matthew gives us a clue in the verses between verse 12 and 17, okay? He uh, says that Jesus went uh, to live by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali in Galilee. Why? He says, this is back in chapter four, to fulfill what was said through Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah chapter nine, land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. In the time that Isaiah himself prophesied that, more than 700 years earlier, the words Zebulun and Naphtali would, within a few years, conjure up the same images to people's minds as the word Gaza does for us today. So if I say that word Gaza, instantly what images are popping in your mind? Bombs, shells of building, suffering, people covered with blood. That's what Zebulun and Naphtali and Galilee would do for the people only a few years after Isaiah spoke. Say those words, you would think of a land in darkness, All right? Now, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, Mordor, okay? All right. Now, Isaiah spoke of people living in a land of darkness. There are two sorts of darknesses he was speaking about. One was spiritual darkness. Isaiah spoke of people refusing to listen to the word of God in favor of looking for guidance from the dead, talking to mediums and spiritualists, going to seances, spiritual darkness. Now that is directly relevant for us because that could describe the hills. Do you know, in the last census, 2021, do you know what the largest group was in the hills when people were asked to specify their religious affiliation? Very crude measure, right? only affiliation, not whether they actually believe anything or go to church, but the largest group in the census was, and I quote the report from the Australian Bureau of Statistics, in the Adelaide Hills, secular beliefs and other spiritual beliefs and no religious affiliation was the largest broad group, religious group, reported overall in the Adelaide Hills, 57.9%. Okay? So all around us, in sunny Aldgate, People call themselves spiritual, but they are walking in spiritual darkness. Okay, so the first darkness is spiritual, but it leads to the next one, and that is the darkness of coming under judgment. Isaiah chapter 8, this is just in the verses before Isaiah 9 that we read. Distressed and hungry, they will roam throughout the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged and looking upward, will curse their king and their God and then they will look towards the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom and they will be thrust into utter darkness. And so it happened. In 722 BC, uh, next slide, thanks. Um, A few years only after Isaiah spoke the words, the Assyrian superpower came across from the east and then entered Israel from the north, wiping out the northern 10 tribes of Israel and they never recovered. But here's the thing, guess what? The tribes that first experienced the horrors of the Assyrian invasion were the northern tribes, Zebulun, Naphtali in the region of Galilee. And so terrible was what happened that even in Jesus' day, when people hear the words Galilee, their mind just went to mortal, you know, the horrors of judgment. It was where people walked in darkness. But against that backdrop comes the wonderful prophecy of Isaiah nine. Where there was darkness and gloom, chapter eight, Isaiah speaks of a future day where there will be no more gloom. (laughs) Do you love that? And for those who are in distress, where in the past he humbled Galilee, in the future he's going to honor it. And that's why Jesus began his ministry in Galilee to announce the good news to those who lived in the land of darkness. He came to shine as a light to those who knew they were in darkness. He came to overthrow spiritual darkness by being the resurrected Lord when he appeared again in Galilee, that's why he sent his disciples back there. He came to obliterate the darkness of judgment through declaring his resurrection in that place. Death was overthrown. By appearing, you see, in the place that people equated at that time with spiritual darkness, and the darkness of God's judgment, I think it's brilliant. By going there, he showed how, how bright his light shines, right? Imagine for a moment, Jesus had only appeared in Jerusalem, but there was this still dark place where he didn't appear. It wouldn't have been so obvious what his resurrection achieved, but by appearing before his disciples in that, the darkest place that they knew, He helped them understand how bright the light of his resurrection was, do you see? And so now we come to the details of the appearance when he appeared. The 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go and that's a new detail, mountain. Mountains being high, of course, the highest points were the the most obvious touch point between the heavens and. The earth, it was the place you went where you were most likely to meet God or the gods, it was thought. Think of Moses or Elijah, who meet with the Lord on Mount Sinai. Think of the mountain where Jesus was transfigured, where Moses and Elijah again pop up, they like mountains. Where Peter and James and John heard the very voice of God. The disciples went up a mountain And because of all those associations, we are expecting them to meet God. And who do they see? Jesus. They're expecting and they saw. You can put the equation together, can't you? No wonder they did what they did. They worshiped him. They worshiped him. Have you thought about this? I want us to think about this. Imagine you were one of the disciples. Now you've known that he's died and you've heard news that he's risen. And when you see him, you know it's Jesus because you know know him. But the one who was dead is now alive And he must have been glorious because, he he must have appeared like that because their immediate, spontaneous, instinctive response, without too much thought, was just to worship. But now, the categories for thinking about him are being blown apart. You see, beforehand they'd they'd known that he was of God, like a prophet, a prophet of God, who spoke the Lord's words. More than that, they'd worked out that he was from God, like an angel sent from God or the Messiah sent from God. But now something new is dawning. He wasn't just of God, he wasn't just from God, he was God. More than that, he, no, he's risen from the dead. He is God. We know they thought this because they worshiped him and they were Jewish men, right? They knew their Bibles. Worship was something you only did for the Lord God. First commandment, you shall have no other gods but me. Second commandment, you shall not make for yourself an idol or bow down to them or worship them. And yet here they are, worshiping the resurrected Jesus. Now that explains that next awkward bit in verse 17. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Now, usually that's a bit embarrassing, isn't it? We jump over that bit quickly because, uh, you know, it's awkward. But think about it. I think it cracks open the Great Commission, all right? We can sympathize with them, can't we? Some of them must have been thinking, I know it's Jesus. I know he's risen from the dead. He is clearly from God. He is clearly of God. But oh, is, is it really right to give him what we can only give the Lord? Is it really right to worship him, to give him our worship, a person? You get the question, you get the issue, right? You worship the Lord, don't you? Do you worship Jesus or does that seem uncomfortable? The tension is felt today. Muslims, Jehovah's Witnesses, even atheists, they all have respect for Jesus, but they will hold back from giving him their worship. This is a uniquely Christian thing to do. Well, who was right? Those who did worship or those who held back? How do you work it out? You know, what would help settle it was if God himself had, in the past, Set an expectation that in the future one would come who was divine but also human, a human figure, a human figure who was divine who would be worthy of worship. If God had told us in advance that that would happen, that would really help. Well, guess what? He has. And uh, in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, you go back and you read it and Daniel has this vision and it's, it's terrifying. He, he has a vision of the kingdoms of the world and they are depicted as terrifying, powerful beasts. But after that comes another kingdom which grows and is bigger than all the other ones, the kingdom of God. And then verse 13, Daniel says, in my vision at light I looked and there before me was one like a son of man, a human one, coming with the clouds of heaven He approached the ancient of days, the Lord God, and was led into his presence. And this one like a son of man was given authority and glory and sovereign power. And get this, all nations and peoples of every language worshiped him, do you see? Meaning that he is God. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed, Daniel 7, 13 to 14. That's the prophecy. One like a son of man, a human figure, who will be given all authority in heaven and on earth, and one day will be worshiped by the people from all nations. Now, come back to Matthew 28. Here's the second thing you may not have seen. In the Great Commission, Jesus uses the exact language of Daniel chapter seven, okay. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted, and then Jesus came to to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, and therefore go and make disciples. You look at the sequence of events, right? After we read that some doubted, immediately we read then, because of the doubt, right? Jesus came to them and he uses language right out of Daniel 7 and he says, guys, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You see what he's saying? He's settling their doubts. He's saying, guys, I'm the dude from Daniel 7. I'm the divine human son of man. If you were worried about whether it's right to worship me, let me settle your minds, I'm that guy. He was to be worshiped, I'm him. It's right to worship me, and that's not all. The third thing we often miss in the Great Commission, there is a connection between worship and mission. Verse 19 begins with the word, therefore. Therefore, because I'm the son of man given authority who will be worshipped by the nations, therefore, obviously, duh, you need to go to the nations, don't you? and make them my disciples, because I'm gonna be worshiped by them. They need to hear. Okay, let's just pull all the threads together. Do you see that Jesus' resurrection appearance in Galilee up north, the land of darkness, makes him the light to everyone who lives in the darkness of superstition and the judgment of death. He's the light. He's the light to the world. Can you see how when some worshiped and some doubted that Jesus settles their doubts by using language straight out of Daniel 7 which says it's absolutely right to worship him. Now, he will qualify this by the way. He won't say, oh just worship me because then he'll say, guess what? And who the Lord is One God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You baptize them into the name, singular, one God of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But within that, yes, it's right to worship me, okay? Can you see how everything Jesus tells his disciples to do? The great commission to go out to the nations. Can you see that that flows out of the rightness of worshiping him. Last point, getting our vision right. What we've just read are Jesus' final words to his disciples, his agenda for us until he returns. Now next week we're going to come back to what we have to do, all right? But I wanted to spend a week on why, the foundation, on the prelude, the context to the commission. The reason is that obeying the Great Commission, of course, is, well, it's all about things we do for God. But without looking, first of all, at who Jesus is and what he's done, you know, our vision's going to be distorted. In the end, if it's all about what we're going to do for God, it will be unsustainable. If I just lay out a whole lot of things and you say, yes, 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 and we all sign up and we work very hard, guess what? Without... (laughs) the foundation, we are gonna dry up. We're gonna be spiritual husks. Our appreciation of grace and Christ's glory is gonna decrease as we get tired, and our sense of guilt and duty is going to increase. That's not sustainable. We will find ourselves exhausted. We must begin with the gospel. The gospel is all about who Jesus is, the son of man, the Lord of life, the light of the world. It's all about who he is and what he's done. He's just died for the sins of the world. He's risen to life, he's broken the power of darkness and death. He's shining good news out to everyone. This is the gospel and that is why they worshiped and that's why we must, we must begin with the gospel and the order is essential. We've got to begin not with what we do for God, but what he's done for us, with who he is, what he's done for us. It's essential not just for our energy levels, but actually our whole relationship with God. You know, our standing with God doesn't depend on what we do for him, it depends on what he's done for us through Jesus. Um, That's where our joy comes from. That's where our delight, that's where the energy to keep going comes from. You know, if we think our standing, first of all, uh, begins with what, or depends on what we do for God, that is not only wrong, error, heresy, it actually is a recipe for failure and discouragement because no one can ever do enough. And even when we do our best, we can't determine the results, it's God and God alone who brings the growth, but if we can't determine the results and we think it's all about us and what we achieve, and we, we're not, we can't you know, determine it, that is very stressful. You have to begin with the gospel. And our first response to the gospel is one of worship. You know, there's been a lot written about burnout recently. There's been stuff coming out now about burnout of pastors and burnout of volunteers in church. Maybe you've been there I am really keen as your pastor that no one here burns out. I just want to let you know that. It does no good for anyone, okay? But do you know the number one way to guard against burnout in your Christian service? It's to begin here, it's to to begin with worship. With who Jesus is, what he's done, to allow yourself time and space you know, to soak it up again and let it feed your soul. And that is so energizing for wanting to serve. Magnifying Christ in your life for who he is, this feeds your soul. And so in thinking through God's will for our church, what's the first thing to take on board? It's Jesus' glory. He came to bring us out of darkness. He came to dispel the darkness of ignorance. He came to shine a light upon you. He came to bring you out of the darkness of judgment. He came to the disciples as the glorious Son of Man. And that is how, friends, he is going to return and come to us, the glorious Son of Man. And what a day that will be. Because what Daniel prophesied will come true. Every nation will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. They will do, just as the disciples did, (laughs) they will worship. We have a chance in God's kindness, and we'll think about this next week, to tell this community in darkness about the light that has come, the light who is Jesus. But before we do that, we have to let him shine on us, don't we, and appreciate his light. Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, and indeed, Jesus, we praise you now in the fellowship of the Spirit. You are the eternal Son of God. You are the Son of Abraham. that that brings blessing to the nations. You are the son of David, the king of kings. You are Christ, the Messiah. You are the lion of the tribe of Judah. You are the root of Jesse. You are the bread of heaven who sustains us and feeds us. You are the light of the world. You are the eternal son of man, rightfully worshiped by all people and nations. You are the light of life. You are the one who destroys death. You are the abolisher of darkness. You are the radiant light who brings us out of ignorance and darkness and superstition. You are the defeater of death. You are our eternal high priest. You are our atoning sacrifice. You are our Passover lamb, sacrifice for us. You are the one we worship, with the Father and the Spirit, one God, forever and ever, fill us up and help us to see and draw deeply from who Christ is and we give our worship today, amen.